Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. You mess with the bull, bull. you get the horns. You get the horns. The Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Sexual harassment, a massive issue globally now, as it should be. Harvey Weinstein uh, being held up as a, not only a sexual harasser, but also a sexual assaulter, a rapist. There's a lot of talk about sexual assault and sexual harassment. And we've been speaking with women in the RCMP on this program for about eight years. And we've talked to just about all of the women who've been front and center in national news including Atoya Montague, who will be with us tomorrow. Atoya Montague is one of the four women who was named by Ralph Goodale in his national news conference as being an RCMP employee who was sexually harassed. Only immediately thereafter, Mr. Goodale and the government dropped all interest in Atoya Montague, and she continues to struggle as her trial date continues to be set back and her finances continue to shrink. She's going to be back with us, and I'm also going to be speaking with an active RCMP inspector who has a lot to say about what's happened to the RCMP. He has great concerns about nepotism and corruption. We're going to be talking to this inspector. He has a lot to say. I don't think you will have heard him anywhere else. Now, these two stories, and Scott Newark's going to talk to us about them and give us his analysis. Scott Newark is a former Alberta prosecutor, executive officer of the Canadian Police Association, security advisor to the governments of Canada and Ontario, and now a security and justice policy analyst, as well as an adjunct professor at Simon Fraser University. And the two stories that we're going to speak with Scott about, the first one is that... um, the federal government paid out $31.25 million to three men who were falsely imprisoned in Syria. Let me read you a few lines from Global News. The federal government has paid settlements totaling just over $31 million to three men falsely accused of links to terror groups, then imprisoned and tortured in Syria in the early 2000s. Uh, Ottawa announced earlier this year that it had settled with Abdullah al-Malki, Ahmed al-Matl, or Mati rather, and Muyaid Nuruddin. None of the three men has ever been charged with any terror-related offenses. Uh, They have all denied ever participating in any terror activity. Public Safety Minister Ralph Goodale and Foreign Affairs Minister Christian Freeland also formally apologized last winter to the three for, quote, any role Canadian officials may have played in relation to their detention and mistreatment abroad and any resulting harm. They had filed $100 million lawsuits against the federal government for its alleged role in their ordeals, which occurred from 2001 to 2003. Scott Newark joins us. Scott, uh, what are the immediate questions that are that are there to be asked now? Well, um, I think getting the facts straight, are we getting the facts straight is probably the first one to start with. And even as you read the uh, headline quote, um, these people were not falsely accused. They were 
frankly, not falsely imprisoned, because we didn't imprison them, it was the Syrians that imprisoned them. And that's not the basis on which we, once again, have made a closed-door settlement. Um, and it, it, they are being portrayed, as was the case certainly with uh, uh, Mahar Arar and to a lesser extent even Omar Khadr, as though they were these people completely innocent of anything and the underlying assumption being that, oh, the terrible institutions of the Canadian government and the RCMP and CSIS, they must all be you know, Islamophobic and they're doing all these terrible things. The truth is much, much different than that especially in relation to these three people, but that's all completely absent from any media reporting. These guys were all uh, the subject of intelligence and national security investigations before 9-11, okay? They were all, all three of them were individuals that had come to the attention because of their activities and their, uh, who they were associating with, and there's an interesting twist in that, and I'll get to in a second, both by Canadian officials and by American officials. And guess when you drill down, Roy, into all of their activities and what they were doing and who they were hanging out with and everything else and where they had been in the past. Two of the three of them had been in Afghanistan. Guess who is a common link amongst all three of them? I know who it is, but go ahead. The Cotter family. Okay. Oh, I didn't know that. I thought you were going to say Mahar Arar. No. Well, Arar has links into them. Arar was simply part of the group. But when you drill down into all of their activities, guess what? All three of them. And that, that's the point in all of this stuff, is that when you're doing intelligence analysis, and don't forget, unlike criminal justice, uh, the criminal justice investigative world, we measure success not in prosecution but in prevention. So the idea that these guys, oh, they must be innocent, completely innocent if they weren't convicted of anything is not accurate. Our people were doing their jobs in detecting who these individuals were, tracking them. We had even, uh, on, uh, to my understanding, in two of the three of them, they had been interviewed about what they were doing and what they were up to and who they were associating with. Um, and, and two other points that, that, that really need to be mentioned here. Uh, number one, uh, uh, these guys, uh, all, of, all three of them, left Canada voluntarily to travel to Syria. We were not involved in any way in their transfer, okay? People forget to mention that. The second part about it was is that it's very convenient uh, 16 years later, or I suppose even in fairness like seven or eight years later when the Yakabuchi report did this investigation into these three, pe people forget what the circumstances were immediately after 9-11. It was actually known as the second wave. I was involved in some of the work then with the, uh, with the Ontario government, and even before 9-11, I've been aware of some of this stuff from my work at the police association. It was actually known as the second wave. There was a real concern that there, was, there were other attacks that were coming. And, you know, years and years later, to take this armchair quarterback, oh, well, yes, you know, they shouldn't have done that, or they shouldn't have filled out this form that way, or they shouldn't have done, you know, something... That's not the appropriate way to look at these kinds of activities. So what really worries me about this is, frankly, we're creating a damned-if-you-do, damned-if-you-don't environment, right? Our, our uh, foreign affairs officials and CSIS officials were absolutely slammed by the Supreme Court of Canada for actually going and uh, interviewing Omar Khadr, who was being held on uh, terrorist investigation right, in a, in a different country. Yeah, yeah. But that One was unanimous. 
about just from Justice Yacobucci is that there wasn't sufficient intervention by our, our officials for these three. That is not a healthy so, situation so what a, so, Scott, a risk-averse environment. Scott, one of the uh, complaints is, or maybe the key complaint, is that the RCMP and CSIS provided information Correct. about these men, uh, and that's why the Syrians got a hold of them, and it was information that would, should not have been provided. If I'm, un, if I'm reading correctly, that's the one part of the complaint. It is. Yeah, it is. And, and there are definitely um, activities that the RCMP and CSIS did that, looking back, I mean, this wasn't, and it, in some instances, the sharing of the information, for example, is with the Americans. Mm-hmm. But the, I just was going over Justice Yacobucci's report. He's not saying that the activities of the Canadian officials led to the Syrians arresting these guys when they were in Syria. But he does say that, I, and I believe it was on two of the three cases where uh, CSIS in particular was providing information or providing uh, questions so that they could be asked of these officials. Well, here's the, sto- here's the line. Say that we should have realized, hey, you know, the Syrians are not exactly uh, people who you can trust. Yeah. In how so here, here's the line, Scott, from the news story. In 2016, CBC News obtained documents that showed Canadian law enforcement officials were aware that the three Canadians were being tortured and that a Canadian ambassador even helped to deliver questions the RCMP and CSIS wanted put to the men, I guess, while they were being tortured or under the when they're being imprisoned by the Syrians. So uh, did we did we cross a line there? I think, personally, I think we made a mistake in the sense of not recognizing that when these guys were in Syrian custody, if we provided information, uh, that they might get roughed up while they were there. Right. Yes. Okay, and I think this should be de- dealt with as a lessons learned experience, like, okay, so how are we going to deal with this? Because, Roy, this isn't going away. We have other people, there, there are, to my knowledge, there are at least two Canadians, young females, who were jihadis in um, Iraq who've been captured and are now in Iraqi custody. How are we going to deal with them? I remember that story. I don't know. Yes, neither do I. But you know what? That's what we should be sitting down, I think, and designing a strategy that is, in effect, charter compliant, a lessons learned approach as opposed to a finger pointing approach. But it should be based on the truth and the fact, which is not that these were three little angels just sort of walking around who somehow got came to the attention of our well, they just, because of the fact that you know they're all well, they crazy. they just got paid thirty thirty one point two five million dollars. What a coincidence of that number, eh? It does work out to ten point five million each. You know, one of the other things that I find ironic about it is that the uh, there was a notification that the apology was being made in March and that there was some kind of settlement, but no details were provided. Mm-hmm. It was only um, six months later when uh, CTV reporter, uh, to his credit, uh, Glenn McGregor, was going through the 1,500 uh, pages of the public accounts, which were, is the spending made by the government, but, but it's in the fiscal year, which ended in March 31st of 2017. So, in other words, the government has kept this amount just like they did with Omar, tried to do with Omar Khan. It was a line item. They kept it. They kept it quiet and tried to conceal it for six months until the media reported it. Okay. Now the other story. We're going to take a break before we talk about it. But you remember, do you not, that uh, Correctional Service Canada, one day on this program, said to me, and we were talking about uh, Bernardo, and they said that Bernardo was had his had his rights. And then the spokesperson for Correctional Service Canada said, and the rest of you are non-convicted individuals living in the community. Yeah. Remember that? Oh, yeah. 
That was a classic. That was a classic term. Non-convicted individuals living in the community. I then find out, and I'm sure this has been. I mean, you're aware of this. Uh, I was probably aware last year, and then I forgot about it. And here it is again. The individuals who left Canada to go and fight with ISIS or other terror groups now are filtering back into Canada. Their term is extremist travelers. The federal government calls them extremist travelers. I don't even know what to do with that. I would like to know who came up with it, and I'd like to know who said, sure, let's use it. I, I would suggest it's the RCMP. They've have a, had a history of uh, using that kind of language. Really? Okay. Well, ha- hang in. We're going to come back with more from Scott Newark, and we'll talk about these ISIS fighters I don't even like the term ISIS fighters. After what I, we've all seen what they did to people. Uh, they're coming back to Canada, and are they a threat? Well, yeah, I would think so. Stick around. Think you can swim with the sharks? Talk with Mr. Great White himself, Roy Green. The Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Coming up next hour, our good friend Dr. Zudi Jasser. He will join us from Arizona, and we're going to be talking with Dr. Jasser about what uh, the outgoing senator of Arizona had to say about Jeff Flake, had to say about uh, Donald Trump, and uh, how Dr. Jasser uh, assesses this. He's a former president of the Arizona Medical Association and is a nuclear cardiologist, also a former U.S. Navy lieutenant commander. That's coming up at the top of the next hour. ISIS volunteers are coming back to Canada. The number is about 5,600 have returned to their countries of origin after taking part with extremist groups, terror organizations, including ISIS. The French are giving welfare payments to the ones who are going back to France. And in Canada, we call them extremist travelers, but I I don't know what we're doing. Scott Newark is with us, former advisor, security advisor to the federal and Ontario governments, and executive director of the Canadian Police Association, international security expert. What 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 are we doing? Are you there, Scott? Have I pushed the button? Well, there you are. Have, uh, I mean, for example, uh, some of us have been asking this for quite a long time because this was predictable. Um, have we assembled a database of who these people are? Um, are we using face recognition biometrics to detect them in case they use phony documents? Um, are they being met at the airports when they return, or even, frankly, before that, if they've managed to get out of either Syria or Iraq, are they coming from Turkey, are they coming into getting you know, smuggled into Europe and then coming out of there, are they being dealt with there? We have tools in place, Roy. Um, Section 810.011 is a terrorism peace bond where we can actually make inquiries of people to determine whether or not they pose a risk uh, in relation to terrorist activity. Uh, unlike normal sections of the criminal code, if they're engaged in what is terrorist activity, as defined in Part 2.1 of the criminal code, uh, if they are, have been engaged in that, activ- that activity abroad, that is still a potentially uh, prosecutable 
uh, terrorism offense, you don't necessarily want to invoke that full authority in going after people by, you know, criminal prosecutions. Uh, or even if there may be cases where you don't think the peace bond is necessary. But are we doing any of that? Or is the sort of more politically correct attitude of just, oh, well, you know, because they went and did this, there's a, we have no evidence. Well, that's why, that's why they're right? called extremist travelers, because it sounds politically correct. How could, how could somebody who signed up with ISIS not be considered a threat when they come back to Canada? Well, exactly. And I mean, uh, the, how does that the, happen? the notion of the word extremist is what raised the flag for me, because that is language the RCMP senior command has used, if you remember, Project Samosa in Ottawa, where they apologized, as they put it, to their Muslim brothers and sisters for making the arrests of the uh, the would-be terrorists during Ramadan. Okay, and then the the uh, then uh, Assistant Commissioner Gilles Michaud said, oh, "Well, we have no problems with Islamic extremism, only when it results in crime." Uh, hello, given the motivation of terrorist crime, in my business we call that a clue. Sounds similar to what uh, has been reported about the guy Sharifi in Edmonton, doesn't it? That the RCMP determined. He had extremist ideologies, but that he hadn't done anything, so they just didn't bother to do anything. You know, we've put some tools in place, but the people on the ground have to use them. I'm just reading something as you're as you're talking. I was listening to you too. Right. Um, I, I always listen to you. <laughs> I do. It's a ISIS, a group that poses a particular problem because they became frustrated. Oh, these are the individuals who didn't make it there because they were frustrated after they were fired up to join the caliphate. So Adan made it all the way to ISIS, but they were coming back. A sense of failure and resentment towards the authorities may increase the likelihood that they'll seek other ways to achieve their objectives. This is according to the report that's been written. I love this line. It, uh, it noted that one of the people involved in the attacks on the offices of Charlie Hebdo magazine in Paris had been prevented from traveling to Syria. So I'm, when I say I love that line, it just brings it all into some unfortunate sharp focus. Then when they come back, they're giving them welfare payments in France. What, Actually, what's wrong with the picture? was that uh, some of them were receiving welfare payments uh, while they were over in Syria. Uh, fighting with uh, with ISIS, their systems were so disconnected. But this this is a part of the new reality that we're facing. Okay, and your so we don't know what we're doing. Your laws and your operational procedures have to adjust to deal with the new reality. Yeah. And when you're dealing with something that is a threat that is motivated by this kind of an ideological um, uh, sense that happens to be based in a religion, you've got to adjust and be able to deal with it. And simply saying, oh, well, you know, uh, this is somebody simply an extremist and a traveler here, that's not the way to approach things. And that's, that's what concerns me when we were talking before about the, uh, the three guys. And I only have about 10 seconds, Scott. What worries me about this is that we're creating, you know, a damned if you do, damned if you don't environment, and that can re- result in risk aversion for our people on the front lines who just, you know, look the other way and don't use the tools they've got for, to protect public safety. Scott, always good talking to you. All right, Roy. And I do listen. Thank you. Scott Newark. Uh, please go back, if you have the chance, go to the Roy Green Show page on the website that uh, the radio station you're listening to, the chorus station you're listening to, and have a listen to my conversation last s- Sunday with Steve Day, Colonel Steve Day, the former commanding officer of Joint Task Force 2, Canada's Counterterrorism uh, Special Forces Unit. Have a listen to Colonel Day and what he said to us last weekend. We'll come right back. <laughs> 